Good evening. Well, brothers, this is certainly a privilege for me to be able to address a group of fellow pastors in India, and so I'm deeply grateful for this opportunity. Brothers, what do we do with suffering? Now, I suspect, in fact, I'm almost certain that for many of you, this is not merely an intellectual pursuit. The last two years have presented pastors all over the world with challenges and heartaches that this generation has never experienced. And yet, here we are, as Paul says, afflicted but not crushed, struck down but not destroyed. God is faithful. Brothers, as we come to the end of this conference, my prayer for you is that through this talk, you would be reminded of God's good and sovereign control over your churches, over your ministries, and even your very lives, so that you would return to your pulpits comforted and strengthened to minister well to the sheep that God has entrusted to your care. Now, if we are going to make any sense of suffering or disease or hostility or even pastoral trials of various kinds, then we must not only understand the gospel of God, but the God of the gospel. And scripture tells us that the God of the gospel is the creator of all things. He is the king of the universe whose power is immeasurable, his wisdom unfathomable, and his purposes unstoppable. His counsel will always stand. He is a king who will not share his glory with anything or anyone, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That's Romans eleven, thirty-six. Brothers, this God has graciously revealed himself to us that we may truly know him. And while we can truly know him, when considering his sovereign power, one of the things that we need to tell our small, puny minds is that we cannot know him as he knows himself. We cannot know him exhaustively. So Job says in Job 26, verse 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Brothers and sisters, to this God, we have been given access in one spirit through the saving work of Jesus Christ, so that we, with daring confidence, can call upon him as Father. So let's do that now as we ask for his help in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now open our eyes to see the glory of your sovereign power and authority. Show us your glory in the face of our Savior and help us rest in your good and sovereign hands. Lord, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would strengthen the weak. May we count every pastoral trial as joy and see it as yet another reason to draw near to you. Transform our hearts, O Lord, that we might delight in your fatherly love and cast all our burdens on you. Strengthen us with your power that we might run with endurance the race that you have set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. On May 4th, 1856, Charles Spurgeon got behind his pulpit 
And he said these words, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And brothers, this is why when we think about suffering in ministry, we would be at a great loss if we did not think deeply about the sovereignty of God. Brother pastors, I want to remind you that the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners is only possible because of a sovereign God who wills suffering for the good of his children and for his glory. Think with me. If he did not ordain every event in redemptive history leading up to the cross, leading up to the suffering and death of his own son, we would not be Christians. And therefore, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, we can know that our Father in heaven ordains all our trials and he rules over them. And he intends them for our sanctification and for his glory. Brothers, this is important to know because when pastors face trials, our minds tend to drift towards very dark places instead of going to Jesus, instead of going to Him in His Word. These are places, thoughts, and emotions that can lead us to despair and not to our Savior. Now, I know in India that power cuts are quite common, but sometimes you lose electricity because a fuse blows. Well, brothers, suffering tends to be like a blow, tends to have that effect on our thinking. When suffering comes, a fuse blows, and even the godliest pastor begins to struggle. We struggle because we have forgotten important truths about God that can sustain us under the load. Brothers, your pain, your wounds, your financial struggles, and your stresses all happen in a world that is under your Father's sovereign rule. The sovereignty of God is the supremacy and the kingship of God. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging. His kingdom is over all. There is nothing outside His sovereign control and rule. What gives you the right to do what you do? to preach the gospel, to disciple members, to counsel the hurting. It's not your degree. It's not your caste. It's not even your citizenship. It's not even the government who gives you permission. No, you and I do what we do because of the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers, you and I labor under the authority of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you may suffer, you suffer as a soldier and servant of Christ. And just as he heard the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt, brother, he hears you. He hears your cries. He hears your groans. To suffer means to bear under something. Therefore, the one who suffers is the subject of some painful, distressing, or even injurious experience. Suffering can be very broad. 
And the Bible often uses words like sorrow and grief to describe the state of the one who suffers. And any pastor who has not experienced sorrow or grief has not really shepherded his flock at all. And so here's what I'd like to do this evening. I want to talk about three things. Number one, the causes of suffering. Number two, the purpose of suffering in the life of a pastor. And number three, how we ought to respond to our trials. But first, let's consider the causes of suffering. When we look at the whole counsel of God in Scripture, we learn that the causes of suffering are complex. And allow me to mention four. Number one, suffering exists because of the fall. Suffering exists because of the fall. We read in Genesis 1 that God spoke the world into existence and the world that he created was good. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created in God's image and they were placed in a particular context and given a specific commission. They were to trust God's word. They were to enjoy his presence and fulfill his mandate by filling the earth with his glory through the multiplication of godly offspring. But we know how that went, don't we? Adam and Eve rebelled against God instead of trusting and obeying his word. As a result of their sin, they were judged by God and banished from his presence. God cursed the world so that it bore thorns and thistles, making work incredibly hard and frustrating for the man. And he made the process of childbearing for the woman agonizingly painful. Pastors, we live in a world that has been cursed by God. And while Jesus Christ has inaugurated the new creation in his blood, while we have been born again and given the gift of saving faith, we have been given the power of his spirit to overcome sin. While all of that is true, let's not forget that this creation still groans. The new heavens and the new earth is not yet here in all its glory. We still do battle with our sin. And we still await the redemption of our bodies. We await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And work is still frustrating. Mothers still experience pain in labor rooms. Brothers, why should pastoral ministry be any different? You know, Jesus has accomplished, he has done what Adam failed to do. And he has called us in the Great Commission not to, to make physical offspring, but spiritual offspring. And that's going to involve hard labor. The task of making disciples is hard work. And we live in a world that is not conducive to this task. In fact, it is opposed to this task. Things don't always go according to our plans, do they? And so pastors, remember, in this age... Disease, dilemmas, disappointments, dangers, and discomforts will remain our constant traveling companions. Number two, suffering exists because of sinners and because of the consequences of sin. Suffering exists because of sinners and because of the consequences of sin. You see, Scripture tells us that we are sinners by nature and by choice. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Paul, quoting the Psalms, says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The sinfulness of fallen man is demonstrated immediately after the fall, when one brother murders another brother in the story of Cain and Abel. You see that in Genesis 4. And Genesis 6 tells us that the wickedness of man was so great and that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And so God judged the world with the flood because of that. After the flood, we see that Noah's son sins and he gets judged for it. The nations sin at, at Babel and are judged by God as he confuses their languages and disperses them all over the earth. Friends, the fact that we have so many different languages and the fact that we are dispersed and cannot understand each other is meant to function in the same way that every scream from the labor room is meant to function. It is not meant to teach us how awesome we are. No, it's meant to tell us how sinful we are, how short we have fallen of the glory of God. Communication has become hard. This makes missions hard. This makes church planting hard. This makes discipleship hard. Friends, the consistent testimony of the scriptures is that we are helpless sinners unless this God enters into our helpless state and rescues us. And brothers, he has. He has done exactly that in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And he is the hope of the Old Testament. Just reading the first two books of the Old Testament exposes us to murder, incest, lies, scandals, rapes, betrayals, thefts, political and social corruption. And yet we see that God was sovereign over them all and that nothing could stop his redemptive purposes leading up to the coming of the Messiah. Oh, brother, pastor, you need to remember that when circumstances seem overwhelming. You know, in our day, technological advancements and better education have only made us more sophisticated in our sin. And they have made your members more sophisticated in their sin. Every pastor who loves his sheep knows that sometimes that this task can be burdensome. It can be a mental and emotional drain on you so much so that it can affect your health. Watching over souls can sometimes be a joyous task. And sometimes it can make you groan. Brothers, do your members frustrate you? Do they hold you up to impossible standards? Have you been slandered by people you thought were your friends? Have the most godly and fruitful people suddenly left your church without giving you a reason? Brothers, all these things have been ordained by your Father in heaven. Pastors, don't be surprised if you face hostility from unbelievers. This too has been ordained by God and is under his good and wise sovereign control. Do you know why that happens? Why that enmity exists between believers and unbelievers? Because God put it there. You see that in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And friends, don't we see that being played out in Scripture? Cain and Abel, 
Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, children of light and children of darkness, sons of Abraham and sons of the devil, sheep and goats. Why creation itself groans under the weight of sin. We see in the Old Testament that God sends famines and earthquakes and floods to specifically judge sin. And at other times, we don't know why they happen other than the fact that our rebellion has brought a curse upon creation itself. And friends, this is why the, the earth that was first made hospitable to sustain human life now sometimes is inhospitable to its residents. We see that when natural disasters strike. Number three, suffering exists because of Satan. Suffering exists because of Satan. Satan is called the God of this world. You see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6.12 calls him a cosmic power over this present darkness. Satan opposes God's purposes and God's people. And from time to time, Scripture peels back the curtains, as it were, and gives us a glimpse of unseen causes behind our sufferings. So, take Job, for example. Satan unleashes havoc in Job's life, and how does he do it? Well, we read that he, he did it through natural disasters and sickness. We also see Satan inciting David to number his troops in 1 Chronicles 21.1. This is an act of sin for which David takes full responsibility and gets punished for it even. In the gospel narratives, we often see demons as being responsible for certain diseases that Jesus heals. Jesus himself sees his ministry of healing as an assault on Satan's kingdom, something that the Old Testament prophets said would happen when the Messiah came. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and inaugurates his kingdom and his power uh, breaks through, all the, those prophets spoke about came to pass. Jesus' healings are unique in that sense. He directly attacks the powers of darkness. When Peter talks about the suffering of believers in 1 Peter 5.8, he cites Satan as being responsible for them. Describing him as a roaring lion waiting to devour unbelievers. But friends, remember this. Satan can only do what God, his creator, permits him to do. We know that because of the story of Job. Satan can only do what God permits him to do. God is sovereign, not Satan. Now, brother pastors, you should know this. False teachers... And false converts can be a source of great grief, can be a source of great suffering in the life of a pastor. In fact, you can see false converts and false teachers mentioned in almost every letter in the New Testament. And do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15? Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of of righteousness. They can appear as false converts, as divisive false teachers, and yes, even public health officials calling you to forsake the Lord's commands, all with good intentions. See, Satan can only do what his creator permits him to do. And we must do 
what God commands us to do. Number four, suffering exists ultimately because of God. Suffering exists ultimately because of God. You see, even though Satan and wicked people and a cursed creation act as secondary causes of suffering, ultimately God is sovereign over them all. See, Scripture teaches us that God's will determines everything, brothers and sisters. Nothing exists or happens without God. He doesn't merely permit things to happen, but He actively wills them to happen. He ordains or decrees them to happen. So listen to Isaiah 46, verses, verse 10. God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. When Jesus tells his disciples why they should fear God rather than men, he points them to God's sovereignty over every little natural and even insignificant event. You remember what he said? Matthew 10, 29 to 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Friends, even though we can learn a great deal about our world through science and research, ultimately, God takes credit for his sovereign control over what we think is seemingly natural. Job 37, 10 to 13. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for His land or for love. He causes it to happen. And that's why as Christians, we don't believe in Mother Nature. No, we believe in Father God. He causes it to happen. God not only shows himself to be sovereign over natural events, but he's sovereign over the affairs of men. Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Friends, God is sovereign over your decisions and he's sovereign over other people's decisions. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21 verse 1. Even though human beings make their own choices as rational beings and are held responsible by God for their choices, mysteriously, God is sovereign over them all. Friends, if God indeed determines all natural events and human affairs, then it follows that he has also decreed the existence of evil and suffering. And yes, brother pastor, he has decreed your suffering as well. Very often we hear the argument that if God is all good and all powerful, then how can he permit the existence of evil and suffering? And therefore, the logical conclusion reached by some is that either he must not be good or he must not be powerful. But I want to suggest that there is a third option, a biblical one. The Bible teaches that God is all good and that he is all powerful. And if he is all good, 
then he must have a good reason why he ordains suffering and sin and evil to exist. Brothers, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your churches are going through. I hear a little about what's going on in India, but you are in the thick of it. And so I don't pretend to understand what you must be feeling or what you must be going through. But here's what I want to do. I want to point you to the one who does know what you're going through. And he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he is sovereign over the sins of man and Satan and all kinds of evil. And this is what the Bible explicitly teaches. Listen to Exodus 4 verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, unable to speak? Or deaf, unable to hear? Or seeing or blind, unable to see? Is it not I, the Lord? Friends, God is the one who shapes and forms human body parts in the womb. He's the one who gives life and he's the one who takes it away. Who has made, who makes him mute or deaf? That's the language of causality. God is saying, I am responsible for this. I ordain this. I will this to be. You know, the text is not talking about secondary causes like a road traffic accident which leads to eye damage and then, and then that leads to blindness. Or a genetic anomaly that causes a child to be born deaf. This is not talking about those causes, nor is the writer denying that those causes exist. No, the Holy Spirit here in this text is talking about the ultimate cause. The Lord himself, God shows himself to be the one who has power over disease and sickness. He is sovereign over every cell in your body. Pastors, your health is fundamentally not subject to germs or genetics. It is subject to the Lord. Not a single cell in your body can be infected by COVID unless the Lord ordains it. See, the Lord is sovereign over all infirmities. There is not one disease, defect, or deformity that exists on this planet without His express will and purpose. Knowing that the Lord is the ultimate cause of all things ought to give us courage when we are fearful. It ought to give us comfort when we cannot make sense of suffering. And it should assure us of His power and strength when we struggle to obey, when our faith is weak. Because it is this God who gave us His Son to rescue us from our sins and from His wrath. He has proven His love for us and therefore we can trust in Him even when nothing makes sense. And so when God says no to your prayer for healing, for your cancer, or your sick child, trust in His sovereign care. Trust in His wisdom. God is enough. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Brothers, only God in His Word can provide you with the sweet relief. Pastors, the sovereignty of God is the pillow that you can rest your head in the midst of your trials. Nothing in our world happens without the express purpose of the Lord. Lamentations 3, 37-38 Who has spoken and it came to pass? 
unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Or Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45.7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Think about Job's rebuke to his wife when she urged him to abandon his integrity and curse God. Do you remember what he said to her? He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the text says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And brother pastors, nor do you sin with your lips when you confess that God is sovereign over all things, including your suffering. You see, the Bible teaches two truths together, simultaneously, concurrently. On the one hand, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They make choices, they obey, they sin, and they will give an account to God for their actions. On the other hand, God is absolutely sovereign, but His sovereignty, listen carefully, His sovereignty never functions in a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. When God has commanded you explicitly in His Word to do something, never say, He has providentially hindered me. No, God has told you what to do. God does not providentially hinder the obedience of any of His children. He does, however, providentially test you to see what is in your heart, to see whether you will trust and obey His Word. That's what Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says. So God is sovereign and human beings are responsible to obey God's word. And those two truths are taught together. This is called the doctrine of concurrence. And we see this illustrated for us in one of the most well-known stories of the Bible, the life of Joseph. You know the story, Joseph's wicked brothers became envious of him and they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And we see that God preserves Joseph's life and through several trials raises him up to a position of power and influence in Egypt. We also see that God uses Joseph to preserve the people of Egypt and his family during a severe famine. But after his father's death, after Jacob's death, Joseph's brothers are left feeling a little bit unsettled, wondering what Joseph might do now. Will Joseph take revenge on us for what we did to him. And this is what Joseph says in Genesis 50, verses 19 to 20. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph recognizes God's sovereignty and his goodness in his circumstances. And brothers, there are two things you should note about Joseph's response. Firstly, just because he sees God as good, as so and, as good and sovereign does not cause Joseph to look at his brother's actions and call them good. No, he calls them evil. Brothers, we should always call good, good, and evil, evil. 
whether it is the rising sexual violence against women and children in India, or the persecution that our Afghan brothers and sisters are currently facing, whether it's that church member who is battling COVID in the ICU, none of those things are good. Those are horrible. Those are terrible. The Bible never calls evil good just because a good God is sovereign over both good and evil. Here's the second thing you should note about Joseph's response. Notice how he upholds God's goodness while affirming his sovereignty. This is what he says to his brothers. You hated me. You meant evil. Your motives were ugly. You are culpable for your actions. But yes, God was behind it all. He was in control of every event. But with one difference, God's motives were good. He meant it for good. He doesn't say God used your evil for good. He says he meant it. He ordained those very things, but with good intentions. You had evil intentions. God had good intentions. Why? Because God is good. You see, in a very mysterious way, God distances himself from evil while at the same time remaining sovereign over it. He is not the author of sin. He is not blameworthy for sin. He is infinitely good and holy. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Or Psalm 5 verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Brothers, this is why we can give thanks in all circumstances because our sovereign father is always good. His reasons are always good and it is his good pleasure to give his children the kingdom. God is sovereign over all things, including the actions, the evil actions of men, and yet he is not responsible or culpable for sin because his motives are always good and in him there is no evil. We see that in the Joseph story, but also we see it in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When believers prayed to the Lord for boldness in Acts chapter 4, this is what they confessed. They said, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, evil men, all these men, were responsible for the cross. But then they go on to say that these wicked men gathered to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan, God's plan, had predestined to take place. That's Acts 4, 27 to 28. So evil men plotted against Jesus and killed him. And yet the Lord was sovereign over the greatest act of moral evil over the greatest act of injustice this world has ever known, and that is the crucifixion of God's own Son. Isaiah tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crucify His Son. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Brothers, if God wasn't sovereign over sin and suffering and evil, there would be no Good Friday. Because what Herod and the Jews and the Romans meant for evil, God meant for good for your good and for his glory. Every 
single historical event from the fall to the flood to the exodus to the formation of the nation of Israel to the exile, every event, every sin, every consequence of sin, every power struggle, every betrayal, every birth, every death was carefully ordained by God to fulfill His eternal purpose that He has realized in Jesus Christ. Brothers, this is a God we can entrust our sorrows to. This is a God we can trust when we suffer. When there are dark clouds looming over your heads, when you feel overwhelmed with sorrow and pain, when evil seems to abound and surround you, I pray that this truth would be the pillow that you rest your troubled heads on. This glorious good news that God has provided for us a savior and it is his sovereign hand that leads his people. God providentially cares for his people because he has good redeeming purposes for them. Brothers, so often our hearts are led astray in the midst of affliction and trial. Our sin, our own sin unsettles us. The evil around us disheartens us. And we so easily forget, we so easily forget that the one who ordains all things, ordains them with nail-pierced hands. Let's not forget that. The God of the gospel is a God who is sovereign over the suffering of his son and he is sovereign over the suffering of his adopted sons and daughters. Therefore, for his children, he always intends good and works all things for our good. Without concurrence, this doctrine of concurrence, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be Christians if God wasn't sovereign over your sin, over your rebellion, over your wickedness. Friends, that should give you comfort. Praise God that he is sovereign over suffering and evil for the good of his children. Point number two, what's the purpose of suffering in the life of a pastor? What's the purpose? Well, brothers, the purpose of suffering in the life of a pastor is the same as his purpose for the Christian. In every trial, one of the first things to go out the window is our identity. We forget about that. That's the first fuse to blow. We forget who we are. Brothers, you are a Christian. And the life of a Christian is one that is marked by temptation and trial and persecution and suffering and death. Does that sound strange to you? You know, as fallen human beings, even as sinners saved by grace, the very mention of suffering makes us uncomfortable. Any talk of sickness, persecution, or dying makes us squirm in our seats. It makes us uneasy. Friends, you need to know that it is the will of God for every Christian to experience sufferings and trials of various kinds. God has sovereignly ordained trials and sufferings in the life of a Christian to refine our faith. He means that for our good. So that when those trials come, it will be seen in the lives of his people that they have no other comfort other than him alone. And that brings him glory. It's his will. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that, that it's his will. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or take Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted... That's gift language. It's a gift to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's faith, 
but also suffer for his sake. So pastors, here are two gifts you get when you are born again. Faith and suffering. Authentic, biblical, Christ-honoring faith goes hand in hand with suffering. Brothers, we suffer because we have been united by faith to the one who suffered and who has sovereignly ordained sufferings as the means to sanctify us. It is the mark of the children of God. God has only one son who is without sin, but he has no sons who do not suffer in the path of obedience and in the pursuit of righteousness. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, that's the condition, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers, you cannot be glorified if you are not sanctified through suffering. That is why God's children can rejoice in suffering and trial, because it is the evidence of God's grace working in their lives. It's not a lack of it. It is the evidence of God's grace. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. This should be normal. Expect it, but rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice now, so that you may also rejoice later. Pastors, you will suffer not just for preaching the gospel. You will suffer also, you'll also suffer for doing what is right, for doing what scripture commands. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or take James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, what sort of trials? When you're giving drops, when the government imposes irrational and obedience-opposing sanctions on churches, when members repeatedly refuse your counsel, when you are slandered for practicing church discipline because you love the church. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the gospel is not that Jesus suffered and died in my place so that I can have a suffering-free life now. No, the gospel is that Jesus, and su Jesus suffered and died in my place for my sins so that I can suffer well, trusting that I am secure in him. And every trial exposes my sinful heart and draws me closer to my Savior. You see what trials do? Brothers, your trials, your suffering is not meaningless. Christ has freed us from the power of our sins so that we would not love the world, but look forward, put our hope in the glory to come, in the world to come. The Son of God, the second person of the sovereign triune God, took on human flesh and died in the place of sinners, of sinners who worship their autonomy, who worship their desires, who worship their comforts and their glory. 
He did this for sinners and he rose from the dead to give us new hearts that find our delight in him alone. If you don't know him, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ alone. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Every follower of Jesus is called to a life of suffering in the path of righteousness. Beware of any message that teaches otherwise. Suffering in the lives of Christians is the Lord's loving and fatherly discipline to make us more like his son. And therefore, don't despise it. Don't despise it. My son, he says in Hebrews 12, 5 to 6, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. Brothers, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And that may come in the form of a tyrannical government, may come in the form of a health idolatrous society, a child with special needs, a job loss, a terminal disease, extended family members who love and worship Indian culture rather than loving the truths of scripture can come in many forms. But remember, it is God's love towards you for your eternal good, for your holiness. That's the purpose of every trial. No trial, no suffering, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is that faithful bridegroom who says to his bride, the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you in sickness or in health in suffering or in well-being. And he is the only bridegroom who can say this, not even death can do us part. Brothers, that knowledge can supernaturally produce in us the joy of contentment in the midst of suffering. So how should we respond to suffering? Point number three, how should we as pastors respond to suffering? I'm going to give you 12 points and they're going to summarize all that has been said before. Number one, don't be surprised when trials come. That's 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Expect it. Talk about it. Get together with other pastors frequently. Read good books on suffering and talk about it. So I was looking at the, the website of the All India Pastors Conference, and there are some great books recommended there. The Role of Pain in the Christian Life by R.C. Sproul. Let me recommend another book, Weakness is the Way by J.R. Packer. Or just read Suffering in the Sovereignty of God by John Piper. Don't be surprised. Keep talking about it when you're not suffering and prepare yourself for that day when you will suffer. Number two, remember the gospel and your calling. Christ also suffered, leaving you an example. Brothers, you've been called to this. This is God's will for you. You see that in 1 Peter 2.21 and Philippians 1.21. Always remember that. That's the first fuse to blow. Number three, be mindful of God. Remember his sovereignty over all things and entrust yourself to him. Especially when you suffer unjustly, when it's not your fault. And let me, let me suggest this. Start with the small things. 
Start with the small things. Remind yourself that he is sovereign when your bike tire gets punctured, when you miss the bus, when the electricity goes off, when the motor doesn't work, when your children fall sick. Be mindful of God when the little things go wrong and then you will be able to submit to him when the great sorrows arise. Number four, trust in the Lord's wisdom and power. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 2 Peter 2.9 Brother pastors, he knows what he's doing. So often when I'm confused and weary and tired, I say to myself, I don't know what's happening, but I have comfort that the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Number five, remember suffering is for your sanctification. It is meant to produce endurance. You see that in Romans 5.3. So teach yourself that from the New Testament. Teach yourself that from the Old Testament. Do you remember what David said in Psalm 119 verse 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Number six. Remember that suffering and trials are battles that require you, pastor, to fight your unbelief. Fight it with faith in Christ's all-sufficient work. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Number seven, pray. Pray, pray, and pray. Remember what James 5, 13 says. Is there anyone among you who is suffering? What should you do? Pray. Go to the one who has all authority and all power. Go to the one who can help you and you will receive grace and mercy in time of your need. Christ ensures that you will get that. Number eight, endure. Endure suffering. Remain steadfast knowing that you will receive the crown of life. That's what James 1.12 says. Number nine, resist the devil and be firm in your faith. Resist the devil and be firm in your faith and remember the church. 1 Peter 5, 9, Peter says, your brothers face the same problems all over the place, all over the world. Remember, you're not alone. Number 10, rejoice. Count it all joy, James 1, 2. Brothers, this is God working in you. This is God working in you. Number 11, be filled with hope. Remember that all suffering is temporary. You know, there might be some people listening to this talk who will find relief from, your, from their sufferings only in glory, only in glory. And here's what I want to say to you. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. Number 12, Trust that God comforts his afflicted. He comforts the afflicted and he does it through other people in the body who have suffered and have received similar comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. So pastors, rely on other pastors. Rely on your elders and your members. If you are going to suffer well, you need to have a biblical understanding of what a church is. I know you, you might feel that you're the one who needs to be ministering to others. But pastor, remember this. God has given good gifts to your congregation to minister to you as well. 
There have been so many times when a member in my church has prayed for me when I was discouraged. They reminded me of those precious truths that I had forgotten. And I needed to hear that. You know, sometimes it will take an ordinary member to replace that fuse. Members who are committed to each other, to each other and to their pastors, is the context, the local church, is that context in which you can be ministered to. The church is all you need. Brothers, one day Christ will return for the consummation of all things and we will be glorified. John tells us that in that day, Revelation 21, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more suffering. But brothers, that time is not now. There will be suffering before glory, humiliation before exaltation, just like it was for Jesus. Trials are divinely ordained for true faith to shine. You know, it's pretty easy to reduce saving faith to a peaceful feeling. It's easy to reduce saving faith to, to mere assent, as though if you know the right answer, you'll be all right. But when trials come, you know what it does to your faith? It rouses your faith to grab hold of the God of promise. It makes you rely not on yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. There's something about suffering that is supposed to bring to your mind the glory that is to come. There is something about trials and sicknesses and pain and distress and grief and loss that should point you to the new heavens and the new earth. There's something about grief that should cause you to look beyond your circumstances and to the cross, to the God who makes all things new. And that should cause you to rejoice. Brothers, the God of the gospel is sovereign over your suffering. And he ordains suffering and trials as means to sanctify you and make you more like his son, bringing us closer to glory. But unless you see your sin, unless you see your wickedness as a greater evil than all your trials, unless you see the wrath of God and his eternal punishment more severe and more frightening than any trial, you're not going to find joy in the salvation that Jesus Christ provides. Brothers, God is very much in our lives, working quietly behind the scenes, through the job losses, through the floods, through the fires, through harsh governments, through unjust employers, through miscarriages, through failures, through difficult marriages, so that we might see more of our sin, but also that we might see much more of our Savior and be anchored in Him. Before I close, I want to introduce you to a friend from the past. This man had multiple childhood infirmities that he never grew out of. He struggled to sleep at night, and his eyesight was very poor because he read by candlelight. His wife died less than nine years after they were married. He had no children since his wife was unable to have any after a single miscarriage. He had many critics who were a constant source of grief to his soul. He suffered from chronic asthma, migraine, Pleurisy, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, gallstones, severe arthritis, and frequent influenza accompanied by raging fevers. Imagine that. On top of that, John Calvin was constantly harassed by the city council who tried to control his church. 
and he constantly felt the pressure and demands of an incessant workload. You see, Calvin was a towering and influential theologian and pastor in his time, but he was also a profoundly afflicted man. And yet in all of that, he knew that the God who knows all things, orchestrates all things, ordains all things, superintends all things, is the very same God who provided for him a savior. And so he was content to not know the reasons behind all his afflictions. Calvin himself once said, Thou, O Lord, thou bruises me. It is enough for me to know that it is thy hand. Let's pray. Lord, you are our good shepherd, and you are more glorious and more satisfying than good health or any other comfort that this world can offer. Cause your shepherds, O Lord, in their ministries to rely on the God who raises the dead. And may your sovereign goodness displayed to us on the cross of our Savior forever be our joy and our comfort. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.